Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the February edition of One Move at a Time. Our guests today represent the nonprofit Minnesota Chess Center in Sarasota, Florida. Nicholas Lewis is the executive director, and Grandmaster Pascal Charbonneau supports the coaching and advisory team. Nicholas is a graduate of Florida State University with a Bachelor of Music Education degree. He has held diverse professional roles since graduation, which included professional violinist and conductor, software developer, copyright coordinator, Wikipedia administrator, product lead for Minds.com, and most recently, founder and executive director of the Minnesota Chess Center. Nicholas discovered chess during his freshman year at college when he began playing with his college piano instructor, which led to his piano lessons ending and morphing into weekly chess lessons instead. Or should that be morphing instead of morphing? <laughs> um, uh, so that's my problem for making a joke. I screwed up the, the intro, so let me find my spot again. Um, <laughs> uh, after graduation, Nicholas moved to Sarasota, Florida. He worked in the technology field for three years before reinvigorating his passion for playing and teaching chess. During this time, he began pursuing the launch of a local community chess center in Sarasota. The result of his efforts culminated with the formation in June 2021 of the Minnesota Chess Center. Today, the center has grown to more than 50 members, and it now delivers a wide range of chess programs and activities that include monthly U.S. chess tournaments, chess study groups, and private group lessons from U.S. chess certified coaches. Additionally, the coaching advisory team includes two GMs, Pascal Charbonneau and Raj Khoury. One of those GMs is joining us today. Pascal Charbonneau has twice been the Canadian champion, and he won over a dozen national championships as a junior. Pascal attended the University of Maryland, Baltimore County on a scholarship when the chess team won the national championship four years in a row. He graduated in 2006, magna cum laude with a degree in financial economics and a secondary focus in Russian. After 2006, Pascal aimed his attention towards the financial world. From 2008 to 2019, he worked at a multi-billion dollar hedge fund as a key member of a small investment team. He is currently Senior Portfolio Manager with Vazirani Asset Manager, an event-driven hedge fund. After that long introduction, Nick and Pascal, welcome to the One Move at a Time podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, so before we talk about the Chess Center, which is the main reason we're together, tell our listeners, for each of you, what chess has really meant to you in your life. Pascal, why don't we start with you? 
chess has been a huge part of my life since my since my early days. I think I played my first tournament when I was in the first grade, and then played you know extremely consistently until I started my career in finance and kind of transitioned to working at a hedge fund in 2008. Uh, but even since then, you know, I've kind of stopped playing competitive chess in, in tournaments. But chess has been uh, more than peripherally a, a major part of my life still. Uh, from first of all, a network of, of lifelong uh, friends that I have. Uh, I still follow the games every single day, pretty much that are played, you know, at the top top level tournaments. Um, and and also just you know, even in, even within finance, I'm sort of known in my circle as the chess player, the chess grandmaster, and that's something that's served me very well over the years. It's there, it comes with certain uh, positive assumptions generally that are that are. Uh, have been helpful, I think, in my career, and, and hopefully, I can back them up with uh, with actual substance. Uh, but yeah, chess has been a great tool for me in my entire life uh, in, in in so many different ways. And in what I do now, uh, you know, in, in trading and identifying financial patterns, I think there's definitely some some synergistic uh, relationship with you know the fact that I spent tens of thousands of hours uh, looking at these uh, looking at these chess positions over the years. So um, yeah, so chess and chess is really sort of my lifelong passion. I don't intent for that to change. And it's been great to have a chess center open in Sarasota that allows me to have close by literally a few minutes from my house, uh, a place where, where chess players are going to congregate, hopefully for, for years and years to come and grow it into, into something that's a meaningful presence uh, in an area of the country that I think is maybe a little bit underserved by, by, by uh, live chess in general. Well, before Nick answers, I'm I'm curious, Pascal, with your grandmaster title in in the business world, do you feel that it gives you more respect than you might otherwise get, or do you feel like it's like the the right amount of respect where people go, oh, that's just his chess thing? I don't know that it really matters here. So the, it, it, it's a mix. It, it's a mix in general. I would say probably more more than I deserve. Not to, you know, that's a weird thing to say about oneself, but but more than I deserve because sometimes the assumption will be really like, oh, this guy must be like smarter than everyone else in the room, which I don't know. Maybe it's the case sometimes, maybe it's not some other times, right? I don't really know. But uh but th- that assumption is generally there. Of course there's there's a there's also a, a number of people that just wouldn't know the difference between a, a grandmaster, a master, an expert, you know, or or any of any of those terms could be kind of used interchangeably and and have a similar impact. And so sometimes it's actually felt a little bit frustrating because you know some someone always has a story like you know my oh I think my uncle was a chess grandmaster and it turns out like the uncle was maybe a thirteen hundred level player right it's and it's like a, which is is fine it's just something you kind of learn to contend to contend with. Um, but yeah, no, it definitely comes comes with something, and I think since the you know chess has been getting more popular in schools over the last couple of decades, uh, you know that I've been a grandmaster, and I think just a little bit more awareness and things like the Queen's Gambit on Netflix have also brought a lot more attention to chess and chess grandmasters. And there's almost no conversation I have with somebody new now without them asking me about that show. And, and so, um, so yeah, I think it's you know that awareness has kind of helped uh, the profile of the chess grandmaster in the business world. Uh, somewhat. So Nick, you came to chess a little bit later in life than most people. Now it's very common for people to pick it up as uh, in, as a child, but you you pretty much picked it up in college. But what has it meant to you in this short period of time for you? Yeah, unfortunately, I did not um, start chess as a kid. I didn't really know very much about it until the, the piano lesson that you had mentioned where my friend uh, introduced me to it. So for me, as a non-professional chess player, 
Um, what, what it's really meant to me on, on a personal level is the, the social connection side of it. I've met so many amazing people through chess. And to this day, uh, my three best friends from college are people that I met playing chess. So I think for me, the, the ability for, you know, to sit over the board and be able to connect with people over a game of chess um, is what it's meant to me at a personal level. So let's get into the Chess Center. Uh, it's a brand new venture. It only started in June of 2021. Uh, one of the main reasons I was interested in in talking to you uh, on this show so shortly after you've started this is because I've had a lot of dealings with your marketing guru, Bob Bernstein. Mm -hmm. uh, he has put in a lot of time and effort. He's asked me a lot of good questions uh, about what resources we have available at U.S. Chess. And I find that most chess affiliates, U.S. chess affiliates, tend to rise a little bit more organically, not with this level of detailed planning. Uh, so please talk a bit about what the planning process was before the doors opened. I've always been a major planner. I, I guess because I've worn so many professional hats, I kind of understand how different industries work. And when I started the chess center, I saw a community that was really um, underserved as far as chess. And so I have a background as an educator. Um, my degree is in music education. So I spent some time teaching public school and I think what I wanted to do when I started the Minnesota Chess Center was, um, first of all, provide a, a safe and dedicated location for chess in the area so that we could really build out a strong scholastic program. And in order to do that successfully, you, you really have to pay attention to detail. And maybe that's one of the things that chess has taught me is paying attention to, to detail. But I think... Um, that the, the strong thing that the Minnesota Chess Center has to offer is our programming, um, the fact that we're, we have a growing membership, the fact that we're a U.S. chess affiliate. And, and part of being a U.S. chess affiliate to us is to really work with you and U.S. chess to have the best product that we can have and really have a strong chess presence in the community because... Um, in my opinion, the more chess, in my opinion, more chess is better chess. Why did you go the nonprofit route? Nonprofit route because, um, well, on the one hand, of course, you have donations and um, the ability to apply for grants. And otherwise, besides really those two things, nonprofits and for profit corporations fundamentally work the same way. It's just that um, our mission is to educate and our mission is to expand chess in the area. It's not really just to make money like a for-profit corporation. We really need funding from public sources in order to continue our chess program. Okay. Now, Pascal, you had largely been out of the chess world in a formal way. What was it about this venture that tempted you back? Well, first and foremost, it's the, the, the proximity plays plays a huge role, and, and uh, it was very fortuitous that uh, that a uh, a chess club uh, opened, you know, kind of in my back in my backyard. And uh, you know, if it hadn't, I may I may have done it one day myself, but I don't know if I would have had the uh, if I would have had the uh, entrepreneurial spirit of uh, that Nick has to to make it happen today. And so I feel lucky that he's there to kind of run the show. And then, you know, I think I'm, 
I, I happen to be uh, the only local, locally based uh, grandmaster. I think within a pretty wide region of Florida, like there there are a few in, in the Miami area, uh, but you know to 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 locate Sarasota geographically, for those who may not know, it's on it's on the Gulf Coast of Florida, uh, basically straight across the state from Miami, which is about a three hour drive. Um, Orlando is a couple of hours away. Tampa is within an hour. St. Pete. You know, so there's some big centers, uh, big center of population around here, but there's not, there aren't a lot of, of grandmasters and, and, uh, or, or other titled players really. And so, um, for me, I, 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 I've always loved chess. And if there's a way for me to be involved and help, help the community, I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing this for, uh, I'm not doing, I'm fortunate enough not to have to do this for, for money at this point. I'm really just doing it because, because I enjoy chess. I enjoy meeting other chess players and, and, building these uh these friendship and friendships and acquaintances with with other people and also help kids like i i when i was uh, when i started working in finance i used to still teach teach kids privately uh, i used to also work with you know programs with chess in the schools i'm actually on the, the advisory board now and i um you know i was on i was a board member of the marshall chess club at some point and so i, I i'm kind of uh Kind of looking for ways for chess to rope me back in is is what seems to happen, and and this was a great way. And, and you know, Nick was a great guy. We got along. We got along uh, immediately. And I, you know, I, I hope I can I can help them uh, build this into uh, into uh, one of the larger clubs in the United States. You know, within within the next few years. And when you you mentioned the proximity uh, to you, one I don't think we've mentioned yet that you're actually located in a mall. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Nick, and also talk about what kind of mall is it? Is it one that's going through this transition that that so many malls are? Do they still have anchor stores, for example? Yeah, so that's a really good question. How did we end up in a mall? Um, it's a great location for chess, it turns out, because of all the walk walk-in traffic that we get. But the the way that that happened is that I play in an orchestra that also rehearses at this mall, and I serve on the board of that orchestra. And the mall decided to rebrand itself because it was struggling with retail during COVID. So they're rebranding themselves as an arts and education center. I said, you know, this would be a really perfect time to open up the chess club just right down the hall from where I play in the orchestra. And that's pretty much how we ended up here. I got in contact with the leasing manager and we worked out uh, a great arrangement. So certainly in June of last year, it appeared we were coming out of the pandemic, but did you consider not opening (laughs) during a pandemic and delaying the opening? Um, No, we thought it was really just a a good time. Things were starting to clear up. Um, Of course, there were more strains afterwards that we had to to manage, Um, but we thought that it would be a good time to open. And you're currently... Uh, just over 50 members. Over 60 now. Over 60 now. Great. And Bob told me that you hope to have 100 members by the end of this year. Yeah. Is there a a goal number that you feel you have to have a core number of members in order to be a continuing successful venture in this mall? Well, the more the better. Um, there's going to always be a churn rate. So some people are going to drop off from membership inevitably, and then you need to get more people in. But when we started, we obviously had zero members. And then in just six months, we've grown to over 60 members. And this month alone, we have, we've had nine memberships. And it just seems to be growing and growing by word of mouth and uh, just the quality of our programs. We've had people, uh, 
as far as Miami and Jacksonville come. Um, so just, I, I don't know if there's really a, a specific number of members that um, I, I'd like it to be everybody. Well, Pascal, maybe this is uh, for the financial guy. Um, w- what are the finances of a center like this? Uh, in your head, do you think that there's a, that there has to be a minimum of a hundred members at all times to, for this to be successful, or do you think it needs to be much higher? I mean, I, I see a little bit like a, it's a little bit like a gym, right? Like having members is good, but you also want your membership to be actively involved and be a community that's vibrant and continues to come to the center. So if you have that, then I, I think, you know, you could, you could do with even fewer than a hundred members because it's active. They keep coming every week. And, you know, if you have, if you have really an active membership, it's possible to do it. Uh, also, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's about having people who believe in what we're trying to do here and who may make donations. And, and those are, those are extremely helpful when you're, when you're kind of starting out and building, building something and have these fixed costs at the beginning. Uh, but I think we're very fortunate to have to have an affordable space, uh, and it's a space that's uh, that's very nice and and like feels right for a chess club within a bunch of art galleries and education centers and music places and you know there are a few I don't know if Nick talked about the stores there are a few stores there's not really like that huge like anchor store anymore uh, and that's partly why this mall is, is sort of sort of uh, re- reinventing itself like like a lot of malls are. And, this day and age but it feels like it feels like a good place uh to have a chess club where you're going to get a lot of other a lot of other kids and interested parents and and that are going to want want their kids to be involved and i think the profile of chess has never been better and and in that sense in a community like like sarasota which is a you know a fairly large msa that has you know i think maybe seven hundred fifty thousand people you know, there's there's room there's room to grow into something that's that's very meaningful because there are, you know, there's a ton of schools around, there are a ton of kids around. There's a, and, and Florida, Sarasota in particular, but the, the state has seen a, a pretty massive influx of of people. And I know when I first moved down here, everyone was like, "Why are you moving there? It's you know, it's going to be a bunch of retired people, and and you know, you have young kids." And and frankly, it's great. Like my my neighborhood is there's kids everywhere. Uh, more and more people are moving. And uh, it's a great place. It's a great place for families. Like we're close to the beach. We're close to um, we're close to a lot of parks and natural natural beauty. And it's uh, it's frankly a it's a great place to live, whether you're a small child or, or a retired person. So in that sense, uh, you know, I think it's a great it's a great place to have started a club. And, and I have every reason to believe that that we can make this work. Yeah. So one thing to mention too is originally we were planning to be open every day. And so if you have like 10 members and you're open every day, what I found is, you know, one person might come on Monday and then one person might come on Tuesday. You only have one person coming every day. So if you're only open one day a week and you have all 10 people come on that day. So we have to try to attain a critical mass so that there's always people at the club. I think anytime you want to go to a chess club, there has to be people there that you can play. So, um, that's kind of related to the membership question. It's, it's not really about how many members you have in absolute terms. But it's about how many are coming to the club, supporting the club, participating in our tournaments, attending lectures and workshops, being part of the coaching, being part of the club ladder. It's all about that kind of stuff. And this would probably be a good time to tell people how to find your facility. Uh, what, what's the address of the mall? What's your website address? 
if people don't live in Sarasota and just want to make a donation to support your mission, how can they do that? Yeah. So the, the website is minnesotachess.org. Again, that's minnesotachess.org. If you go to the website, there is a, um, there's a donate now button under how to give. So if you want to do that, that would be great. And the address for the chess center, you can type in Minnesota chess center on Google and we come up as a business, but the actual address is, uh, 3501 South Tamiami trail in Sarasota, Florida. And we are in suite 306, which is right by Lenscrafters um, and uh, next to Palmer's Cafe. Okay. So as, as we're at kind of the halfway point here, I do have a number of other questions I want to ask you, but I, I want to kind of break it up a little bit by trying to stump the Grandmaster. It's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. You may not know this, but you figure in a prominent point of my own career here at U.S. Chess. And I'm curious to know if you remember what that might be. Mm-hmm. Well, for those of you who are listening and not watching the video of this, he has put his um, chin in his hand. He is thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to think. I mean, I've, I remember I've known you. I've known you for a very long time. Uh, okay, it's time for a hint. Yeah. Uh, it involves Gadakamsky. Huh. So. So with Gadakamsky, so I used to, I used to know him fairly well. I, I started coming down to New York City uh, in the early 2000s. So you know, talking 2002 to 2005, um, when at the time my girlfriend was Irina Crush, and I lived in Brooklyn for for some time for a few years after that. Uh, and I used to see Gata sometimes, you know, play some training games with him. So, but I'm trying to think. I will add. I I will add that Irina figures into this as well. Yeah, you you've got me. I feel like I'm gonna. It's like I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna kick myself after. But no, it's. I I think this is just speaks to how much you've done in the chess world. So my very first issue of Chess Life as editor, where you became the editor, you became the editor of Chess right. Life, right? And it was the March 2006 issue, and our cover story was uh, Kamsky leads the Americans at the World Cup, and you and Irina were co-authors, uh, you annotated a number of games for that issue. Interesting. Okay. Well, there you go. So yeah. I do, I do, I do, I do remember <laughs> that, but I, I think I, I may not have, yeah, I, I wasn't going to come up with it. So no, uh, I'm not too mad at myself. Okay. No, good. I, uh, that, that, that one, we, you would have had to dug pretty deeply to, to find that one. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious, Nick, yeah. what do you think is the best path for going forward for your um, facility? Are you trying to draw from people who are brand new to chess or are are you more focused on people who already have some level of tournament experience or chess culture? I think for a chess club, it's really important to have all different levels. You have to have um, amazing people like Pascal at the top of the ladder as far as chess ability, but you also have to have uh, an environment where everybody can play. And for us, we're really focused on the scholastic market. Um, it's the, it's the largest group of people that are interested in playing chess. And we find that, um, a lot of times we have a kid come to the chess center. We connect them with one of our coaches just to play some casual games. They fall in love with it. They become members and then they tell their friends about it and the friends come play. 
and um, we we build out our programming that way. So I think we we do spend a lot of time trying to make sure that good players have a good experience. One of the things we started doing for that is having an over eighteen hundred section in our uh, in our monthly tournaments. But the vast majority of people who are interested in chess are not over eighteen hundred. The vast majority are, are lower than that. So we have to create a good environment for them. I'm one of those people. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and you've gotten off to an awfully good start um, in, in just half a year and during a pandemic. But do you have this grand vision of what the center is going to become? We would like it to be the, the capital of chess in the South, really. You've definitely got competition there. Um, you know, I, I think about how successful the Charlotte Chess Center in North Carolina mm. has been, and they are certainly growing by leaps and bounds. Um, so this, this, this could make for an interesting competition. Oh, maybe, maybe South doesn't <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that, that's reasonable. Yeah. I was going to ask how you define the South because that's always, uh, you know, we can start at South Carolina. Geographical question. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not, not, not that, you know, the, not that there isn't room for more than one chess club. You know, there's a Florida, I think has uh 21 and a half million, uh, you know, residents and uh, a lot more, probably if you count the people that are just transient here. So it's, a, it's almost as much as all of Canada, uh, which I sometimes remind my family of. Hmm. The more chess, the better. What is the seating capacity for a tournament in your chess center? Right now we're, we're capped at 32 with our playing space. Do you have, uh, if you're continuing to, to grow, are you viewing other spots within the mall to potentially allow you to have, say, one or 200 player tournaments? Yeah, so there's a couple options for that. The first is that um, once we renew this lease, it's possible that we would have options to take on the space next door as well because we've been providing a lot of traffic to the mall and so forth. There's also um, a large community space that's available for like oh, just a one-day one day rent period. So that, that could host about 100 people. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, some government-owned facilities that we could explore too. And I also wonder about tournaments that often, you know, it, it's not unusual to go past normal retail hours with a, with a chess tournament. Are, are you limited to those retail hours or does the mall uh, provide... Uh, extra extra hours if you have that kind of situation? Uh, the mall management is really amazing and um, they're extremely flexible and the security team is great and uh, they allow us to operate within our hours as long as we let them know. Okay. And unlike, unlike certain malls, by the way, there is a, there's a place called Cine Bistro, which is attached to, to the space, which is yeah. a, a movie theater that, off, that also has like a bar and that's open actually fairly late. So it's not a mall that's going to be on most days, like deserted by 6 p.m., there's going to be hundreds of cars in the parking lot often because of because of the movie theater, which is which is open, you know, and it's a movie theater that you know serves food and drinks, so it's uh, so it stays open late. Right. No, that definitely uh, makes a huge difference, um, certainly in people's comfort levels. If if you know, along with the actual hours being available, uh, Nick, for people that are thinking of trying a similar venture in their part of the country, I, I wonder about becoming a nonprofit. Is, would you describe that as a, 
as a huge headache to fill out all the proper paperwork and jump through the IRS hurdles? Or was it was it pretty much a big giant nothing burger? I think it's well, if you if you have access to the the steps that you need to do, it's actually less of a headache than a lot of people might think. But if you have no idea sort of how to go about finding that information, I guess it could be uh, a real challenge. But luckily, I have a since I was part of that orchestra, I have a friend who she started the orchestra and she helped me along the, the way with different nonprofit things that I would need to know. Okay. It, it, it sounds in my head like it's a, even having worked for a nonprofit now for 16 years, it sounds like a, a huge headache, but I will take your word for it, especially for someone like you who is a self-described planner. It is definitely, uh, it's definitely attainable and I would definitely encourage uh, people to start their own clubs in their areas. Um, Pascal, you're uh, a, on the study group advisory part of this. Uh, talk about what your study groups are. Are they, are they purely for beginning level players or you know, or do you have masters that could learn something? Yeah. So I think it's, it, it's mixed, it, it's mixed so far and it's going to be, it's going to be uh, probably helpful for different levels, depending on what we do. Uh, you know, I've done a, I've done a simul exhibition so far, obviously anyone can play in that. I think we're, we're hopefully going to have a blindfold one in the next little while, which is probably fun for, for, for better players actually. Uh, especially, and it's actually maybe a little bit easier for me to play better players than to play beginners. So I, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll lobby for a couple of uh, higher-rated players um, because you know when you play blindfold, it's, it's kind of easier to remember uh, patterns that you're familiar with. And if people are playing just random, strange moves, it's, it's it, it actually kind of makes it more difficult. Um, so you have to find kind of the balance in order to do well. Um, but uh, otherwise, so, so like one of the things that I've always found is, is the most helpful to any level of players to do game analysis. And so we're, we're starting to offer game analysis on a regular basis where uh, it's also, it's also a way to encourage players to come play at the club, because if you play at the club, there's a chance that your game will be picked to be analyzed by me. And we're figuring out all the format of that, but it's, you know, it, it, essentially it's something that we can, we can stream, we can publish, we can record and distribute to, to our members and to potentially everyone else uh, with, with, you know, people getting their own games analyzed. Uh, and then we're, I think we're going to come up with a lot more, a lot more things to, to sort of build our, our outreach. Uh, and already, I think we're, we're, you know, we're starting to talk to schools and there's going to be a lot more. And, and uh, I mean, in my, in my mind, I, I like to reach a broad audience if possible. When I, when I was in New York, I did a lot of commentary at, uh, at events that would reach uh reach people that were not the typical chess players and often had actually, a, you know, they would, there would be Lev Albert and a couple of strong uh, international masters there, just like there would be beginners. And so I'm, I've been, I've been sort of, I've regularly done commentary. Like I did a few years ago, one of the last events I did when I was living in New York was a, a simul exhibition that was done by Magnus Carlsen of the United Nations. And he was playing mostly beginners. There were a couple of decent players and I was sort of emceeing the event and, and, um, and trying to provide commentary that would be, you know, entertaining, entertaining to everyone, and not only not only to the educated chess player. Um, and so, you know, I think that the goal the goal is really to reach reach a broad audience of broad audience. Of course, you don't always need a grandmaster to do that, but sometimes the the title still helps. And I'm not like only looking to work with masters. Pascal, did I hear you right? Did you say a a blindfold simul or just more sequential? Uh, no, so I, I I would like to do a blindfold simul at the club. We've talked about it. I can't do. I'm not like you know probably the best 
person in the world at this point is this grandmaster named Timur Gareev, who's spent a lot of time in the US. He can do, uh, I don't actually know how many, but he can do a huge amount of boards. Um, when I was playing actively, I felt pretty comfortable doing eight. Um, so it's, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a simul with like 30 people, which, you know, probably the best person in the world at blindfold chess could do. Uh, but I think I can, I can probably still remember six to eight. I, I I'll try eight. And if I mess up a little bit, then, uh, everyone's everyone will be happy anyway. So, well, this, this class C player who can't keep even one board position in his head is, is, is always shocked to hear that. I believe Timor's record is about 49, maybe 44 that he did. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's astounding, frankly. And there's, there's a method to this, but there's also, there's something genetic going on in there. Uh, Nick, so the Florida Chess Association, have you been, have you worked with them? One, one of our U.S. Chess Executive Board members, Kevin Pryor, is president of the Florida Association. I'm wondering um, what feedback you've gotten for them, any, any work you've done with them directly. Um, yeah, I'm really good friends with Kevin Pryor, um, and he's been amazingly helpful for our affiliate. He's given me a lot of advice on building out scholastic programs on uh, general philosophy, uh, running a, a kind of a chess club, um, e even things like helping me through Swiss Sys to, so we can upload tournament results and stuff. So he's been invaluable. And I'm also good friends with um, another person named Matt Colts, who um, he's on the, the board of the FCA and uh, he's helped me a lot too. He was actually the president of FSU Chess Club before I was, so that's how I know him. Cool. So I, that's, I think we're kind of coming to the end. Is there anything we haven't talked about uh, that either gentleman you'd like to bring up? Not that I can think of, Pascal. No, I think we've we've covered it. And you know, the only thing I'll say is I, I would encourage anyone really living anywhere in the U.S., but especially somewhere that doesn't have a beach, to you know come to Sarasota, and when you do, come check us out you know, at the Minnesota Chess Center and reach out, reach out and, uh, and, and yeah, just, just come, come see us. Yeah, just be careful. You might end up moving to Sarasota. Nick, one last time, what is the website and how can people reach you? Minnesotachess.org. Website is Minnesotachess.org. And you can reach me through email, which is on the website. It's just minnesotachesscenter.gmail.com. And you can contact me by phone. I almost always pick up and I'd love to talk to you. And uh, again, that's minnesotachess.org. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on this February edition of One Move at a Time. And congratulations on having so much success so fast, especially during this COVID era. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, Dan. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.7seasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. 
We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.